Wow, time flies. This pod's been around so long, I remember doing them in person in the studio. But we all made it here in season three of The Derivative. Uh, this pod's brought to you by our Sam's Managed Futures Group. Managed Futures had a comeback year last year with the spike in commodities and inflation talk. And our Sam's professional team of advisors helps investors vet and do the due diligence, do the do, on hundreds of professional managers in the space. Check out everything RCM does at www.rcmalts.com, R-C-M-A-L-T-S.com. Uh, and while you're there, some intel to go with today's pod focusing on volatility trading. Check out our newly updated VIX and volatility white paper. Just click the education tab, then white papers. Okay, on to the pod with Jem Carson, which was a gem. See what I did there? Talking through some of the highlights from a vol perspective in 2021, what he sees in store for 2022, not good. Uh, and how he trades vol and options and the gamma flows he's become known for inside of his Kai hedge fund. Send it. Welcome to The Derivative by Our Sam Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. Okay, welcome back, everyone. Happy New Year. Uh, we're recording this a little before the new year, but you'll listen to it in the new year. Uh, but we're here with the one and only Jam Carson, or Jem Carson, as he's better known. Welcome back, Jem. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. Yeah. And I think birthday wishes are in order. This will be out around the January 6th or 7th. January 7th. Yep. All right. Are we allowed to ask how old you're going to be? Uh, much like Yoda, no. 900, 900 <laughs> years old. Somewhere between 30 and 900. Make yeah, a mark. On, it'll be 45. It'll be 45, believe it or not. So. There you go. All right. Um, so we've done the full gem experience back uh, at the beginning of last year. Uh, we'll put links to that in the show notes, talking through what Vanna and Charm and Gary and all there are as well well as your bat as a market maker and more. Uh, so be sure to check that out. We'll put it in the show notes. Anything from those old pods that we didn't cover in terms of your background or anything you want to touch on? No, I think most people know, uh, you know, I had a market making uh, company that was you know, one of the biggest in the S&P 500 and uh, kind of uh, traveled, traveled the world, kind of uh, Turkish, American, born in London, kind of all over. So I think people know most of the story, but uh yeah, I think I think it's, we covered it mostly. Yeah. Um, so here, our first part of the new year, I kind of want to do a 2021 review and being who you are, kind of focus on the vol space and what transpired there. So uh, we'll hit a few highlights and get to know your thoughts. And I want to dig into both what they were at the time when things were happening and sort of what they are now after you've had time to reflect and the market's kind of shown what was actually going on. Uh, so I'll just leave it open but ended for you and let you go ahead and start of kind of what you think were the three main, I'm hesitant to say market moving events, but kind of the three things that made you go, hmm, which, what was the name of that band back in the day? Crash Test Dummies? <laughs> Is that it? Things that make you go, hmm. Uh, yeah. So I, I think you can't talk about 2022 in the vol space without talking about kind of the meme uh, kind of activity, uh, GME, right amc um kind of all the upside call squeezes uh you know market up vol up a lot of times in these names um i think that kind of dovetails into uh just broadly uh kind of the adoption of vol by retail um the access and 
Um, and I think that's probably the biggest story. Uh, and it's a huge one in the vol space because uh, a lot of people seem to think that's a cyclical story, right? That's going to go away after things reopen and this is temporary and we'll get back to normal. I'm very much the camp that, you know, COVID accelerated a lot of trends in our lives. I think one of the things that it very much uh, accelerated is, is adoption of vol, vol and vol products. Um, I've spoken about this before, but I think there are superior products. They allow you to not only like stocks and bonds, but up and down, but really allow you to bet on the whole distribution. I think people have you know woken up to this in a sense. Uh, uh, they're they're you know powerful ways to bet on convexity, and I think we'll get up to this later. But I think you know we're we're getting into a time when things are a bit more uh, you know tail heavy, um, as I've talked about, and and in that type of environment, options are also more uh, adept uh, at, at you know navigating those types of scenarios. So. I do think that people have educated themselves a ton in the vol space. You know, we've been involved in that as 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 have you, um, and I think that adoption and education will will carry over to more and more um, kind of usage of these products into the future. So we've seen this secular trend for some time, but it's really accelerated, and I think you're going to see more of that uh, kind of uh, until there's you know more regulation, more whatever. We'll see if you know if and when that happens and what it takes. But in the meantime, I, I expect to see a different kind of market. This isn't your, your grandma and grandpa's market. I think we will see more squeezes. I don't think GME and AMC will look back at those as anomalies as much as, as kind of how the market seems to function now that, that ball products are much more involved. Um, so that's one. Um, you know, uh, that, like I said, that dovetails into kind of what we've been seeing recently, which is another big trend, uh, an important thing that's gone on in 2022 is that markets have become much more uh, tail heavy. Uh, vol of vol has increased dramatically. Um, you know, we've seen that very recently. Uh, I talk about this kind of pretty openly about how it's become a leptocurtic market. Uh, you have a lot more kind of tail events uh, and things move a lot more quickly. Uh, there's just a lot more leverage in the system. So you mentioned that the pandemic's accelerated everything, including options trading, but those seem like two different stories, right? Like the move to online shopping, the move to all that, that makes sense of why that accelerated. But do you think we were going to get here anyway in the next 10 years in terms of adoption of options? And it's, it's less like a technological thing, in my opinion, but more of just a, people's brains are advancing to get that, uh, right? They want more and more and more. They want the full suite. So I don't know, just... Okay popped in my head. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I would put it in the, like, as an analogy, I would say, like, work from home is accelerated, right? Why, like, that was a trend that was happening. It probably would have played out over the course of the next decade, but there was a excuse for people to work from home. And now people realize that this should have been how it is all along. And and now, you know, it's become a thing, right? And it's not going away, right? Um, I think it's the same thing with Vol, basically. I, you know, I think people were adopting it. People, it is a superior product, um, more flexible. There's more access now. And people being at home, having more time, uh, managing their portfolios, also having more disposable income, right? The, the fiscal policy we've talked about has you know, lined a lot of people's pockets and allowed them to kind of uh, speculate. Uh, a lot of millennials on down have had less disposable income until recently. Like, uh, I think that's a big part of the desire to catch up and, and do things that are more kind of convex. And you've seen that, whether it's in crypto or in volatility products. And so I think, you know, this, this kind of being at home, the access really accelerated a trend that was already in place. And again, now that people are getting educated, there's these network effects, there's more volume, there's more uh, participation, there's more access. 
I think, you know, it's, it's here to stay. And, and if anything, it's going to continue to accelerate. Um, you know, I think it's, I've talked talk about this before and I'm on the fringe on this one, but I do think it will eventually become uh, the underlying, um, you know, product. And let's dive into that. So you're saying the options volume will dwarf the actual volume of the things that they are on top of that they're tracking? It sounds crazy. Notionally, we're yeah. already there. We've already had notional uh, volumes higher than equity volumes themselves um, throughout this year. Um, I, I personally think, again, it, it's not even close, you know, in terms of uh, these products being superior to betting on underlying outcomes. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, uh, what's happening ultimately on the, on the uh, you know, on the effects of, of the market, there's a much more time uh, element, right? When you want to bet on things, how you want to bet on them, what percentage out of the money, what tails you want to bet on, what part of the distribution. And, and uh, you know, as, as a market, we've gotten so factor, you know, everything's financialized. There's a factor ETF for everything. There is a, you know, automation for everything. Yet we are still betting on up and down. We're still playing in two yeah. dimensions. And, and um, it, it, for me, it's uh, the adoption is already happening. People are, are waking up to this. And, and I think it's just a function of time, education, um, and, and, you know, participation. So, so yeah, I do think it is, you know, it is the full picture underneath the summary, which is the asset itself um, in terms of a financial asset. And eventually, I think, uh, you know, that's where things are heading. That's crazy. And do you think um, knowing what you know now versus when, when there was GameStop, that was last January, right? Was it end of yep. January? So right at the time we talked about that's the citadels of the world, the market makers, the gamma play, the dealer flow. Have you sensed, you know, there was a couple of papers that came out that kind of talked around that. Have you sensed, is that confirmed what you thought or is it a little different than you thought? Not as simple? Well, I mean, if you look at the congressional panel, like the, the, that kind of looked over it, they basically claimed that gamma had nothing to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that this was, <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and disagree with that. Right. Um, obviously, their analysis is a little uh, kind of looking through a keyhole. I don't think uh, you know Congress fully understands how these things work. But um, you know that said, um, your original question: Did what I have expected it, or and, and you know, uh, I think we there's so much leverage in the system. This will go to that kind of that leptocurtic environment comment. I um, kind of I've, I've talked about. Um, you know, the Fed it, it has been the only solution up until the last two years to um, to solving economic issues. So the, the, the Fed has been the only reaction function to the economy. And they essentially have one mandate, which is you know to use monetary policy to control price inflation and, and, and maximum employment, but one tool. And that tool is just more uh, cap money to capital, more leverage. Um, and ultimately, there's so much leverage now after 40 years of pushing money into the system that now that uh, inflation is a potential problem, uh, you know, how, how do you uh, how do you resolve that? Right. You have a you have a, a, a lot of uh, you know, money in, in the markets, a lot of speculation. And now individuals have that access to your fiscal policy. So it's a very dynamic, uh, you know, I guess, explosive um, environment. Um, there's, there's, I think if we saw it in Feb, March of 2020. I think we're going to see more of that. Um, doesn't mean, you know, uh, that the world is ending. We're just going to see a much more kind of fat tailed market um, going forward. And I think that will change how people, people position. And you think um, I'd be on yeah. both sides? I do. I yeah. do. I think pro we'll probably see a right tail before we see a light left tail. And 
And, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, I think we both know it's since the beginning of time, you know, kings have been shaving coins, right? The, uh, the inflationary response um, is the easier path out from, from these valuations. Um, you know, I've talked about this before, and we can talk about macro more, but 68 to 82, uh, you know, the period right before monetary policy was everything, you know, before supply side economics was driving the economy. Uh, you know, we had uh, significant inflation. And, you know, I think the market, you know, will go nowhere for the next decade or so um, after the next blow off. Um, but ultimately, we'll lose 70% of its value in inflation adjusted terms. That's generally how this works. Nominally, yeah. you know, if, if markets don't go anywhere, people can live with it. They don't, they're not happy. But um, but uh, the inflation will help us monetize and growth will help us kind of monetize kind of where we are and the leverage in the system. Talk a little bit about some of the underlying factors there. So there's this meme stop movement, there's the gamma play, and that's, what is that, what are the derivatives that we saw call volume way up? We saw call skew became a thing, right? Um, we've seen a lot of days stocks up, vol up. So talk through a little bit of that as a vol trader, but like what's, what's the downside, or not necessarily the downside, but what's made it hard? What's different given this new, uh, new kind of regime where you have? on the upside, on the call side? Well, it's um, things. One, uh, we're used to in the equity space for 95% of the time, skew being to the downside, right? Um, and now in a lot of these products, you have two-sided skew. So um, that's a challenge for those that aren't flexible um, or understanding kind of positioning in the marketplace. Um, it is a huge opportunity. I mean, it's been an opportunity for us um, you know, for the first time, we're really seeing big enough call volumes and call buying to, to create two-sided uh, flow, um, meaning, you know, in some names, you'll have Vana and Charm flows, which I talk so much about, right, uh, as short and, and, and the indexes, you're still seeing them long. And, and this, this creates a way to kind of get out of two, you know, two different parts of the market right, and, and, and trade them on a rotational basis. I think we saw another, I think this speaks to the amount of rotation we've seen this year. I think we've seen a dramatic amount of um, kind of underlying dispersion in the market. Um, I think we're gonna continue to see that uh, because of these uh, dramatic flows in different parts of the market that are very leveraged uh, you know, in the option space. Um, so I think that's, that's been an opportunity. Uh, I also think, uh, you know, it's been an opportunity in the sense that it allows for relative value positioning um, across the market um, in ways that, that you wouldn't have seen before that would have been much more monochromatic, right? Much, much less kind of uh, dynamic opportunities. So um, as a vol trader, I think it's, it's, a, it's a signal rich environment. It's a, uh, you know, great for vol arbitrage as well. Um, you know, reminds me a lot of 98, 99, 2000 on steroids, right? Um, yeah. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. We're, we're, you know, I think we're amidst a big boom in, in the ball space in lots of, in lots of different ways. And talk, explain what two-sided skew means for a second, if you could, for the listeners. Yeah. Yeah. So skew uh, in, in the options space, we're talking about implied volatility skew. So every strike has implied ball. Right, uh, skew generally refers to how the downside options in the market or this equity versus the upside. Um, generally, because the world is long stock, they the markets take the elevator down and the escalator up. Right, 
um, and people also hedge to the downside. So that creates a a higher implied ball to the downside and, and, and skew to the downside. Now, and higher, a lot of these- higher price, essentially, we're saying, right? Those options are priced higher than they technically should be because there's more demand for them. Correct, correct. Both on a realized basis and an implied basis, they're higher. You know, markets do move faster historically to the downside broadly. Um, but as we've, uh, as you mentioned, yeah. and as we've seen, uh, that's, you know, certain names that's starting to do the opposite. So uh, reflexively, all the call buying is leading to, um, you know, uh, convex moves to the upside. Um, you know, so that's, uh, we've seen two-sided skew. So in some products that the upside are, are more expensive than the downside. Um, you know, and, and that, that's always been the case in commodities or interest rate derivatives or mm-hmm. several other products, but in equities, that's, that's a relatively new phenomenon, um, uh, and, and, and fairly rare. And it's been much more consistently happening in certain names as, as we know. Love it. Um, so that was number one, the meme, meme stock. I had a listener wrote in, he's like, I said, mem, I don't know what I was calling it, but he's like, it's meme. It rhymes with beam. I'm like, okay, meme. So number one, the meme stock revolution, we'll call it. What do you, what's next? 2020. Yeah, so 2021 volleyball, volleyball boom. Yeah, um, sorry, and I keep saying so, 2020, right? 2021, yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> so vol- <laughs> you're living in the past, man. Yeah. Uh, volleyball boom. Uh, you know, again, I talked about the leptocritic distribution, but, you know, you're really starting to see the skew and convexity in the market, not just on a realized basis, but on an implied vol basis. Again, I'm kind of repeating myself a little bit here, but I think it's an important thing going forward as well. It's a significant change in markets. And I think it is going to change kind of the next couple of years. We're going to be talking more and more about this. And real but, quick, um, leptocurtic is taller heads, fatter tails. That's right. That's part. Uh, so when we get, when we get those uh, moves, uh, they're, they're much more frequent and fatter, more likely, you know, uh, big events um, that are unexpected. Um, so those, uh, those lepto, you know, those, envir- those, those types of things are happening at, primarily as a function of, like I said, the leverage in the market, but also because you have these, uh, you know, different participants in the market. Uh, you know, doing unique things. You have uh, more participation broadly in the in the in the vol space, which is also affecting these outcomes, like we talked about with the meme names. So you have a um, kind of a wild west kind of market with a lot of leverage, a lot of money, um, and and it's uh, it's creating uh, really outlier outcomes. And markets are moving in unique ways relative to history. Um, you know, and I think that's an important point, and that's why you're seeing implied you know uh, volleyball going significantly higher because realistically that's markets have changed the distribution under which they, they move recently. And again, until we kind of have a period of deleveraging in some way, um, you know, I think we're likely to see more of this. Um, you know, it's a fragile market underneath uh, the, you know, underneath the hood. And I think people need to be aware of that. And what, is, um, so what does that ball of ball look like? Like what are some of the stats that you've seen there? Um, I don't have the stats in front of me, but, you know, it was, uh, I think, 115, I think, uh, you know, just recently on December 2nd. I mean, you might have some of the stats in front of you, actually. Um, yeah, but it's been just a, in generally, it's volleyball been a, is how vol itself is moving, right? The volatility of the VIX we'll use as a proxy. Um, that's right. Yeah, so I do have some of those stats, right? On that day after Thanksgiving in the next two days, right, the 
the ETF, the VXX, was up 27%, down 16%, up 15.5%. So that vol of vol on those types of moves is, is through the roof. That's what we're saying. That's absolutely right. And, and, and the pricing of it as well. I mean, it's it, what's, you know, an interesting point here, which is, would probably be my third kind of vol uh, comment, which kind of dovetails into this is, if you look at realized vol this year, it's very similar to 2019. The actual daily realized vol is, is, has been about a uh, 19, um, you know, uh, vol, um, you know, on a daily basis. Yet the median VIX, right, has been trading at uh, a 26 as opposed to kind of a 19 back in 2019. So you have a you have a situation where you know the the vol risk premium has been dramatic. And, and for vol sellers broadly, that's been very profitable this year. Um, and the broad argument is uh, if you listen to the Goldman Sachs of the world and the research is that, you know, this is, oh, post 2020, this is, you know, that's when you want to sell insurance right after a big event. And it's likely to remain high for a while, you know, go monetize that vol. Um, and I, I would just say on a risk adjusted basis, however, it doesn't look as good, right? Because when you start looking at the volleyball and how quickly some of these ball events are playing out um, and the risk underneath, even though those mean uh, kind of realized balls are relatively low, the, the distribution of the outcomes are, are different. So we're, you know, hmm. um, and so the risk of selling balls actually, you know, much higher. Um, and even know, particularly in, on a tail, even in the, even in 2021, you're not just saying over 10 years. You're saying in 21, even that volleyball made it up. I'm saying in 2021, that volleyball yeah. has been significantly higher. Mm. And even though the VRP has been high, as long as you're willing to kind of hold, close your eyes, kind of monetize, you'll do fine. But there's been a lot of tail kind of moves and implied volatility, um, as well as tail moves on a realized basis that need to, you know, uh, you know, on a day to day basis that that have uh, really caught. Um, you know, been on a risk adjusted basis, a problem for traders. So I think, you know, again, I think this, again, the tails are going to continue to be a problem. That said, I think the middle of that distribution is going to continue to stay high relative to, um, you know, what the realize will be. So, uh, you know, that, that has a lot of knock on effects for positioning and, and um, you know, opportunity set. And is it too simple just to think then I'll just sell that middle part? and buy cheap wings, right? What, what's wrong with yeah, that simplistic attack approach? Yeah, unfortunately, um, you know, the matter of getting that part of the wing right, right? What yeah. part of the wing uh, is, is going to happen and when, timing is everything. Um, you know, there are structures, which I won't go into intimate detail in here, but that ultimately, you know, will allow you uh, to kind of benefit from, from when you get that move uh, without being long, you know, skew is already high, right? The implied volleyball is also trading high. Skew is high. So they'll allow you to take advantage of that while still getting tail, ex you know, exposure and selling the ad. So we, you know, there are these W type trades, right? Yep. Um, you know, that do very, very well in this environment. And those in particular have been, you know, again, arbing the distribution a bit better. The uh, sombrero or the Batman or the, there's a lot of fun names for that. The, um, <laughs> And have you seen, are you, so you're saying Goldman, everyone's out, like this is the time. Have you seen massive institutional flow into short ball or is there a, a worry? Is there, you know, it's seems like to me outside looking in, it's not back to the, 
pre-Vixmageddon 2018 levels? No, um, I mean, we've talked about this before, I think. Um, you know, there's always this uh, kind of uh, this reality of, you know, August 15th, yuan devaluation, people got blown out, right? Which yeah. led to Feb 16, kind of, uh, you know, much less of a ball response, right, in markets. And, and this year, um, you know, the skew being high and volleyball being high, even though we've had daily big kind of, uh, crazy moves has uh, has drawn a short term floor, right under some of these downside moves in particular. Um, so, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, if you if you ask me, I think you know that's we're getting to a point where that's going to resolve itself in the next six months to a year, just like Feb sixteen ultimately led to. Uh, you know, uh, in 2017, ball compression leading to, uh, you know, 18 XIV blowout, yeah. uh, you know, XIV blowout, then leading to kind of the ball compression of the late 18, which eventually led to 20 March 2020. I think there's another one coming here probably in the next year uh, after people start selling ball a little more aggressively. But yes, at this point, people have been uh, kind of able to uh, come out and, you know, sell ball. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, the, the hedging has, has been enough so that the skew is high. Right. But we do enough pods talking about implied 26 and realize 19. There's going to be people like, Hmm, let's capture that. So a few more of the ones that I've seen, we'll just go through quickly like these the proxy hedges, as I like to call them, right? Some people think, hey, the skew's too high, the put skew's too high, I'm gonna own uh, bonds instead, or I'm gonna own gold instead, right? A positive carry hedge. Like, what are your thoughts on, and generally, why you don't do that in your strategies, but in specific, you know, why that didn't work this year? Yeah, so Vol this year, um, outside the equity space has been very interesting, right? Uh, it had a lot of, uh, you know, whether it's 0.72 or, you know, uh, you know, there are a bunch of other names, uh, Belyazny, whatnot, who have completely shut down vol trading in, uh, in like interest rate derivatives, for example, Euro dollars, uh, had a ton of, of risk, especially here late in the year, you know, starting in September on out. Um, uh, also, you know, like I talked about distribution, like uh, the you know has been throughout the throughout the equity space. Even you've had you know growth versus value kind of uh, really blow out and hurt a lot of long short managers. Um, so there there have been a lot of unique under opportunities under the hood. Uh, that said, on the index level, right, uh, and, and broadly, uh, you know, it's been a, a bit more placid an opportunity to sell. So I I. Um, you know, the, the more traditional kind of hedges, uh, I, I don't think have, have worked because, uh, you know, the reality is those names, you know, those those approaches are are kind of where the positioning is and, and where that positioning is reflexively doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think we're going to continue to see, you know, again, in the index of people are hedged. Right. So you're going to continue to see a situation where the index is not where the hedge works uh in the short term same with a lot of those other kind of approaches and you're saying even that's in the s p itself like that it's so explain that omar you're saying in the index you're saying in the s p itself the head yeah so i think if you 
Yes, correct. If you think about it, you know, the world is uh, leveraged long assets. Uh, you know, everything is priced to perfection and people are hedging that uh, on their tail, uh, you know, essentially buying uh, index fall, right? Mm -hmm. It's uh, cheaper, it's more statistical, like they're looking, they're looking to hedge a, a broad market downturn. Um, and uh, broadly, what that does is that uh, makes it so that the indexes is not where the vol events are ultimately kind of occurring. Doesn't mean markets won't go down. It's just they'll go down slowly, right? And more methodically when they do, and they're generally supported. Whereas you can still see that kind of massive move like we have since February, right? Under the hood, you know, a lot of stock, a lot of growth names topped in February, right? Um, yeah. Uh, and and you have a you have a massive rotation that that's happening where the, there's real stress under the hood. Um, I think we'll get to it probably later in the in the show and like the predictions, but um, you know I think this holiday season is very important into January. Um, you know I've talked about this in, in other venues, but I think we're really seeing real underlying stress in this market. Um, it's something that people don't talk that much about, and by the time this comes out, we'll have we'll already probably know what happened yeah. during this period. But, um, you know, but uh, the reality is um, there's been real throughout uh, October, November, December, there's been real underlying stress underneath the hood, but the indexes have, have pinned and held up the market. And, and so there, um, sorry, just you're saying that's like a structural, hey, I'm Joe Sixpack, I've got $2 million in equities, I've got all this downside tail protection on the S&P. So when markets start selling off, I don't panic because I have the hedges in place. So I don't panic sell and drive further selling. That's the- Yeah, reflect, reflexivity is everything in a market that's based on liquidity. Um, and ultimately who has what and, and who has to sell when. And this is why markets kind of try and find the biggest pain point for everybody, right? Yeah. Um, you know, if you've been in these markets for a while, you know where the most painful trade is is where the market will generally go for the, for the whole. And, I, and my view is that the most painful trade for this market is a continued unwind of kind of growth names and 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 the over kind of the loved hedge fund names, right? Whereas kind of hedges broadly don't perform well, particularly in the indexes, right? Um, you have to be in kind of in those single name places, um, and and so the the vol has been well supplied uh, broadly in in the indexes. There there people are hedged there. Uh, broadly, you have these reflexive on and charm effects too that are supportive. Skew is already high, and all of that leads to a, a difficult kind of uh, you know the indexes are more pinned uh, when they do go down. The, the skew and, and and ball does not perform, uh, and ultimately that is uh, that's a pain point. That that's a situation where people are losing on two sides of you know uh, yeah. the coin. Um, you know we've definitely seen that lately, and I think we're going to see that for a while. Um, but again. Uh, that's kind of a linchpin. Uh, what you have to be aware of was once that linchpin kind of gets pulled out to like, what, what does that mean? Do we eventually have it a, 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 our first kind of 10% plus correction in this market since that, that bottom in 2020. And so I, like I was saying, we'll get to this as a, you know, later in the show, I'm sure, but, but that, that, uh, you know, this period, which should be very bullish, uh, you know, this November, December, January uh, period, um, which hasn't really been yet. Um, again, we have a couple of weeks left under the hood here. If we can, we can get that beginning of that that melt up here. That's very, very, you know, what you what you'd hope for and expect during this time. But if we don't, uh, you generally get to a more dangerous time for volatility markets, and 
and less uh, support, and 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 we could see some interesting action in the new year. Got it. And I'll I'll end with one more twenty one. You were a bunch of your tweets were around Icon. What was he doing? Selling a bunch of puts, buying a bunch of puts. But uh, yeah, there's a couple, there's a couple big players that I've kind of you know introduced more broadly. Uh, Icon's been one of them. I, you know, he's been trading for 30 years uh, in the ball space. You know, as long as I've been here, uh, you know, he's come in at, at opportune times and and sold out of the money puts in the indexes. He does it on the e mini side, so on the futures. Uh, you know, he has a certain footprint, um, and so right. So you don't uh, necessarily know it was him, but you know it was him. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. It's, we, clear, right? it's it's like it's quite clear. Yeah, yeah. but the, the point is not who it is really, just as much as this guy is a consistent player that does that's very good. Yeah, people who know also see it as a signal, so it has a a reflect you know a reflexive effect, right? A cascade effect to it as well. But it also comes in and provides downside uh, support in the market, in the ball space, generally at times when there's stress, which allows the market to kind of uh, be satiated, kind of uh, brings down that skew. And again, can take that, start that Vana charm uh, cycle back um, when ball does pop. So those are generally very the, good moments when that, when he comes in. Because usually the dealers are selling there to the, right? People are buying the protection on the way down and he's coming in and, now the dealers have to buy supply market. Yeah. Yep. So when he's they balancing buy the, he's balancing the market, right? Um, and now and and that that then affects kind of the supply back the other way, right? It's also ultimately a pin, right? Brings the ball down, makes it less stressful. They when the ball has come up, the amount of move that needs to happen uh, after that move increases, right? For for the move to continue for ball imply ball not to come down. And when you provide that uh, vol to the market, it helps slow down the market itself. Ultimately, uh, tends to make that implied vol come down and starts a rotation back where that those vana vana flows come back in and then can be supportive again. What time was that? When did we see that come in? in he's November? come in a couple. Yeah, he's come in a couple times. Most recently, he came in in November, um, and he sold the December uh, thirty eight hundred puts. Uh, that were about a, a month out, um, you know, uh, he sold them about 20,000 times, 30,000 times. Uh, again, it's not an overwhelmingly big trade. It's just the timing of it when he does it uh, tends yeah. to be very good. And it tends to also be at a moment when vol is high enough. And, uh, you know, that supply reflexively also helps, uh, you know, begin a, a loop of, of, of support. Now, it hasn't always been at the exact bottom of the markets, but in terms of Selling ball has been very good timing, um, and and eventually he's been right every every time. Um, so yeah, he's a he's a good one to look at. You know, there's a lot of other uh, big big trades out there. Um, you know that that have had a major effect that we've kind of introduced the, the importance of to uh, you know you know uh, on social media. Let's talk about the other one that was news there in 21, which was the big J.P. Morgan hedge equity that's eight. 18 billion. I can't remember what it is now, but yep. 18 billion. That's right. 18 billion markets were down. Everyone was like, they're going to have to roll this, uh, these strikes. I can't remember what the number was, but then they did a little game theory. Right. And they just did a spread around that and didn't come into that actual strike. So no, they uh, did come in. They did come in. Jeff. They, yeah, yeah, no, they actually ended up having to, um, 
So they always come in. It's 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 in their prospectus. They have to. Yeah, yeah. But I thought uh, they the did way- some synthetic that arrived at the same place, but they didn't come in at the exact strike. But I'll look that up. Um, no, they they did it, but they uh, what they started doing is uh, they will trade it early in the day, hmm. and then by the end of the day they rebalance it to the strikes uh, that are accurate at the end of the day. And we had a big move back in September on the trade day, so they yeah. traded it, and then they had to re the whole trade uh you know uh 55 points um you know at the end of the day so then maybe that's maybe that's the the thing you're referring to but no it's uh it is uh i have to go look again but i think it's uh is it is it 10 delta to 40 delta i forget what the put spread is now i'm actually forgetting what the delta is but it or it's a percent sorry it's the uh the five percent to i believe 20 percent out of the money put spread that they have to buy and then whatever that premium is uh they have to they go sell a call that's equal to that premium so the whole package is zero dollars right as a hedge but um you know because of the the market's front running this and prepared for it now uh, broadly that call has come closer and closer it's almost at the money when they trade it now um yeah and uh and on top of that uh, you know, the, the trade's gotten bigger, so it, it's a bigger, uh, you know, it's, it's now 15 to $20 billion kind of uh, a trade that happens kind of all of a sudden, um, which has a bigger effect uh, on the market. I think the important thing to talk about here, which I haven't talked about as much and has, does have a meaningful effect. Important to note, this is coming up, uh, you know, in a week, right? They're, they're going to trade, be trading this on December 31st. On a very um, good liquid week. In a very liquid week at the end of the year, right? Uh, definitely important to note. And I think you've been seeing a lot of ball compression in preparation for that as well, mind you. I think this last little blip up here and the support we've seen and our kind of expectations of this of this rally here have partially had to do with this, not exclusively, but it does have it does play a role here into the end of the year as well. But an important thing that, that I haven't talked about as much, which I think is very important about this trade, is I think it showcases how liquid markets are. And it ties into this leptocurtic thing I'm talking about. Not only is there tons of leverage, but the liquidity has dramatically come down in the market. The size of the market, of the US domestic equity market is $50 trillion, right? The US, that's the US. Internationally, it's closer to 100 trillion, right? Total global global long assets, including um, commodities, real estate, et cetera, $450, $500 $450, trillion. Okay, these are long assets, right? Now, yeah. very little of this is trading on a day-to-day basis, right? If you think about the fact that an $18 billion trade in the context of a $50 trillion market and $500 trillion long assets is, is having a, a sizable and meaningful at all uh, effect on markets, that speaks to how little liquidity there really is in the market and how little it takes. Again, we're talking about the Carl Icahn trade. It's a 20,000 lot. We're talking about billions of dollars in the context of a, you know, a market goes up, uh, the market goes up 1% in a 50 trillion, that's, that's $500 billion. Yeah. Right. So like, um, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating to, to, to when you start thinking about how little it takes to actually kind of move this massive market and the value of everything. Um, and so I think that's important when we're talking about this leptocritic market and, and how, how much leverage there is in a system, yet how little liquidity there actually is. I think the two things combined really add up to an important picture that 
uh, I think people don't fully appreciate. Um, so yeah, I think it, it, how do you square that with like options volume at record highs and and all this interest in derivatives we talked about in the beginning, but then not coming through to the actual liquidity when it's needed, right? Those seem counterintuitive. They seem cross with one another. Yeah, I think of the people who are speculating or placing directional bets, right? Um, yeah. Not the majority of, of the liquidity, you know, the liquidity, if you look at it, it's, uh, I think it's about $700 billion a day change hands in markets, right? That's like kind of the average volume. Um, you know, if you take half of that, because it's two sides, 350 billion, right? But like most of that is just people, you know, high frequency trading, kind of, you know, in and out, kind of scalping and and the reality is the actual pushing of markets the actual kind of uh, thrust of okay I, i'm actually a buyer or i'm a seller is, is is really that you know 50 billion dollar type number in a day if not lower and so when it comes to options um you know people are able to exert given how low that liquidity is that much more pressure. notional leverage and pressure in a very illiquid market and i think that's what we saw in gamestop and AMC and right and and hell we're seeing it in Tesla right like uh you know that we've seen it in Tesla for some time uh, it's just these markets are very liquid compared to the amount of notional leverage in, embedded in these products. And it's another way to say that of just there's no longer the big banks the big players that are willing to step in and take a directional risk like they're in there playing but as you said very short time frames very defined risk models they know what they want to get out of the market and they're just going to take that on and nothing else. When perhaps 15, 20 years ago, there was a trader who's like, oh, I love this. I'm going to take this risk. And the departments weren't aligned and they were going to let them take some big risk and perhaps blow out the bank, right? Yeah, that was definitely, you know, that's been a, the, probably the biggest factor, right? Um, that said, I, I think it'd be silly to like, act like it was always incredibly liquid too, right? Yeah. I, I think there's yeah. always been a, a, a dearth of, you know, a lack of, uh, liquidity to some extent. I mean, I remember 20 some years ago being in the pit and taking down a big order and, and sending my futures into the market, right? And moving the market by 20 basis points, right? Like, like that it, was me. Not like it, yeah, exactly. Right. So I mean, it, it, the fact that, you know, trades like that can, can have that kind of effect, I think, um, you know, it's always been fairly liquid, but more liquid than ever. And especially given that leverage, um, you know, a, a bigger issue than ever. I've told that story in the pod before we used to trade this trend following system called uh, aberration, I think. And right, it was sold commercially through like technical analysis of stocks and commodities magazine and stuff like that. So when it had an order in palladium and it would, right, you'd get the end of day prices, it would generate an order. It broke through the high in palladium. Palladium was like limit up the next day, right? And it's just from probably like a couple hundred people across the world that bought this system and we're running it on their trade station or whatnot and put in an order to buy two palladium. But all of a sudden, you right, you have 600 lot coming in overnight or first thing on the open in a, in a thinly traded market and boom. Let's move on. You're, uh, you changed the name of your company since last we talked, uh, now known as Kai Advisors. And offering a bunch of different, uh, a bunch seems wrong, but offering multiple different programs. Uh, so tell us about the new name and the and the new programs. Let's start with the name. Yeah, so so Kai means ocean in Hawaiian. Uh, it's also my son's name. 
not to leave my daughter out of it. Her initials are <laughs> IAK. So they're, they're, you know, it's, uh, they're, they're both equally represented there, that but uh, yeah, that works out. So the, but the, the reality is, uh, you know, we had a big institutional client uh, as a long ball, uh, you know, player, primarily a uh, significant one uh, through 2020, as you're supposed to do with long ball. Uh, you know, they monetized that position in, in July of 2020 after a big return for us um, in the, uh, you know, March to April 2020 period. Like, and like, uh, we shouldn't have been so good. Right? <laughs> that's the problem <laughs> with long ball, right? Yeah. Uh, when you make money, you know, the people redeem, but that's you're the ATN. Um, exactly. So, but, but the, you know, part of that, now we have the ability to kind of launch several other, um, you know, both the open capacity, launch our ball neutral product, which we had traded prior um, to the public, as well as launch uh, our dealer flow uh, strategy, which we've talked so much about kind of the social media and even with you about yeah. kind of uh, taking advantage of this dealer positioning, right, and taking net positioning. So much less of a ball arbitrage approach and a much more directional uh, market timing approach based on understanding the, the underlying positioning in these volatility markets. So a, a, a new uh, approach that we use in the background of our ball arb products for some time that we were able to spin out and, and as a separate, much more dynamic strategy. And we've had great success with that since launching that in 2020. Um, and that's kind of, but launching these new products publicly, um, at, you know, instead of having a kind of major managed accounts for institutions was kind of the pivot um, that really kind of led to the new name and, and kind, of, uh, kind of the new branding. And oh, oh, Oceans, right? Uh, you know, these are their waves of, uh, you know, vault flow and, and these, you know, obviously that's kind of where that, what the, you know, what the name is alluding to and, and what's important. So the, so there's three main programs now, the yep. long vol, which you've run for years and years and years, vol neutral and dealer flow. So let, that's correct. Yeah. Let's just spend a little time on each. So long vol, same thing you're always been doing your, what, what's going on under the hood there. So all, uh, so the vol neutral to be clear, was our first product. When I left sorry, sorry. Yeah. Uh, market making, I actually, you know, typical for a market maker to kind of trade vol neutral, right? To really arbitrage by definition is taking nets, your net positioning uh, to zero, right? And trying to extract yeah. the yield. So our first strategy was actually vol neutral, um, you know, for our big institutional client who came in, they wanted long vol. We, we gave them long, uh, we created a long vol product for them that eventually ended up being our long vol product. So the vol neutral is really bringing back a, a product we which is absolute return ball arbitrage that we originally had. New improved, however, because with that long ball, we also added this dealer flow, uh, you know, uh, st strategy underneath the hood for market um, timing, you know, as a predictive piece. And that's really been put into both ball arm strategies as well. So the long ball not only has does a relative value, what's high, what's low in, in domestic equity, uh, you know, volatility, but it also does a what's the most likely outcome given dealer positioning under the hood. Now, you know, construct a, a delta, you know, vol, uh, you know, that dynamic, you know, uh, positioning that you want, both for long vol or vol neutral, depending on the strategy. So those two use the same two engines, right? That, that relative value market maker framework and that, uh, you know, that predictive dealer flow, um, you know, distributions of outcomes, both for underlying markets and uh, volatility surfaces. So those two engines, then uh, we construct a portfolio with um, to, to get kind of optimal positioning. And then the long vol piece, so that'll be uh, short deltas or just long vol? 
It's just long ball. It's delta yeah. neutral at baseline, but it has co- embedded convexity. So all scenarios have to have a certain amount of embedded convexity. You know, um, in it. The I think the key part there, when you think about it, is, uh, you know, a lot of long ball tail funds are essentially, you know, have a lot of burn to them. Like the long, they're you know, you're talking about a situation where. One in two years, they may get get that you know hundred percent type, hundred fifty percent type return. We're really like not a universal or or a tail fund strategy. We are really winning twenty five to thirty percent of the time, right? And 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 have a positive expectancy over the long run, and that's what we've done at, at least in our in our history. And so, um, you know, our our view is it's really insurance for credit, which is a pretty rare uh, kind of thing to get in the portfolio. So that's. You know, again, a, a different approach, but but you know, you want to have your capital there for the time that the big ball event happens, right? And our and our strategy really does allow for that to be the case. Again, not you're not looking at you know 150, 200 percent type returns when it happens, looking for convex returns, but uh, but still not that you know that yeah. kind of a tail product. But then the flip side is that you're not using up the whole account buying premium either, right? Um, That's correct. Which is usually That's how correct. you get those 200 percent returns. And then right. so right. and then the vol neutral is actually delta neutral as well. But is it vol actually vol neutral? Or it's got uh... it, it is. It's vol neutral. It's skew neutral. It's norm vol neutral. It is you know uh, has long. Uh, it always minimum linear convexity on all uh, you know on all scenarios. So it, it, it's really trying to strive much like a market maker would for for net neutrality. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't have some gross. Uh, exposure, right? Uh, you know, what tends to happen when you limit the net exposure on a relative value strategy is your gross exposure goes up. So it has has a bit more uh, gross exposure as you expect from a vol arm strategy, but uh, very non-correlated. Long-term capital management rings in people's heads when you say that, but um, right? So yeah, yeah, no, the, I think the key here is it's always long, units always long convexity. It really is um, you know, uh, not only does it have max risk constraints, uh, it has, you know, an NVAR max, you know, a, a VAR constraint that's fairly conservative. Yeah. But I think the important part here is these strategies, if done right, are um, one of those few strategies that are, that are you can have your cake and eat it too, in the sense that it's an absolute return strategy that has a nice long-term, you know, historic uh, pause return, but that does very well in, in a bearish market and it's secularly Bearish market, you have that's when market makers do well. That's when vol arm strategies do well because there's the relative value spreads blow up. So, a mid Feb to mid March 2020, it's not going to make a lot of money on a crash, right? But late March through April, you know, much like our strategy, it's going to do very, very well after kind of that event or as you're going through a secular downturn like 07, 08, 09, right? Those types of periods. Um, lead to very positive returns in in vol relative value trading if you have a good mousetrap, uh, which we us, do, obviously, as marketers. Yeah, without giving away too much of the secret sauce, help us understand what that looks like. So you're selling what you believe is overpriced implied ball and buying what you believe is under relative to that, buying the other something related implied ball and waiting for that to come in, right? Right. So there's imagine there's two engines. Like I said, the first one is a market maker framework. What is that? Looking at volatility surfaces across the equity space, finding where the best opportunity is at any given moment, right? For, you know, and, and not just across the volatility space, but also within each product, what's high and what's low, what represents an opportunity based on 
the complete universe of information. So I'm not down so to that, a single stock level, right? You're still on the- No, we're, we're primarily focused on the indexes to the extent we do single name, it's it's for dispersion, right? When the opportunity presents itself there, but that's even in a basket. So again, we're playing a statistical game. We're looking at relative value. We don't want to be taking idiosyncratic risk. Um, you know, so that said, you know, there are massive opportunities on the index level, even on, on a basket single stock level when, when you kind of look uh, on a relative value versus one another, both in moneyness and time, right? And across um, product as well. So uh, again, those are tight when there's not a lot going on, when there's not much stress, when there's a lot of liquidity, when there's less liquidity, when there's more stress in markets, that represents more opportunity in the space. So there tends to be much better, um, you know, forward returns on, on an annual basis when when there's more kind of uh, stress in markets and a downside type market. So this is, these are great products to plug into your portfolio to diversify, not only on a non-correlated way, way with absolute return, but also without paying that risk premium, really getting those nice returns and those downturns in markets. So but that it's not a long ball hedge. Yeah, that seems counterintuitive to like, oh, the, you don't want to put on long ball during after the spike. But you're saying here, no, then those opportunities kind of present themselves because everything's a little bit blown out. Right. So how do you square those two? So, so after the kind of risk happens, right? Think about Feb, March 2020 as an example that's more recent in people's minds. You have a, a, the valuations of, of these vol derivatives are all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. The opportunity it, due to illiquidity and stress and people getting blown out, right? And uh, this creates opportunities on a relative value basis, right? And it's a time like 07, 08, 09, for example, you got those opportunities month after month after month, right? You had stress in markets, uh, you know, and on a rolling basis, right? That allowed for monetization of relative value opportunities on a risk adjusted basis that are, are incredibly hard to find in a time of, of, yeah. of you know, times of placidity. So, so those are great opportunities for the strategy. The strategy is absolute return. It makes money uh, you know, and, and on an annual basis in most environments, right? Uh, but it does it's significantly better when there's a higher opportunity, more opportunity set. And that that's why it tends to have on an annual basis a, a more negative beta. These small arm strategies broadly do. So they're great things to plug in your portfolio. If you have a, a, you know, a seasoned professional who knows what they're doing, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a great strategy to plug into the portfolio. Again, I had my success 07, 08, 09 as a market maker. You know, those are the those are the periods when uh, you know vol traders, if they know what they're doing and they're good, uh, they really succeed. And those are those are when vol arm strategies uh, do well if they're real vol arm strategies. The problem is there's a lot of you know quote unquote vol arb out there, which is yeah. you know you know you mentioned long term capital. You know it's 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 not kind of uh, systematic. It's not real arbitrage, right? You're not really going out there and and keeping net exposure to zero. Um, you know, I think the key is, 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 you know, keeping it simple. Like we do, don't go into idiosyncratic risk. Don't go into, um, you know, make sure that you really are net exposure of zero, you know, and not so to get we, too, too into the weeds there, but how often are you like Delta hedging that and keeping it actually at zero? Cause I've seen a little bit of that in the due diligence process of like, yeah, we're Delta neutral. I'm like on a monthly basis, right. They might be doing it every three weeks or it's arbitrary. There's a lot of weirdness under the hood when people say delta neutral absolutely we have um so first of all delta neutral itself is a weird thing right because how yeah. do you determine delta neutrality um if you assume a log normal distribution you may be delta neutral but then all of a sudden you assume a a leptocurtic distribution or you have a a very different you know again we have this dealer flow dynamic where our distributions of underlying you know opportunities are very different 
from what the market may be assuming. So our, our deltas may be uh, neutral and are kind of based on our distributions, right? Mm. Um, but, but to your kind of layman, it may look like we're long or we're short. Um, you know, so we really do have these two engines. One, again, is, is a predictive piece and we're going neutral to that distribution, right? Um, and, and the other one is, is relative value, uh, you know, at given static, uh, where the, the universe of opportunities are, what's high, what's low. So, so we really do have these kind of two separate drivers of profitability and alpha there. Um, and they're both kind of unique and, and non-correlated in a lot of ways too. And, and how do you, you mentioned before, like there's not as much opportunity in the index itself, um, because it's kind of overplayed. I can't remember exactly what we said, but how do you square that with like you're dealing in all the indices themselves to be clear i was saying hedge hedging right if you're a long if you're going long ball right uh the opportunity uh, you know tends to not be as as strong right as as opportune in the indexes now right i think there is a there is a you know particularly in the s&p uh there's a lot of hedging going on there right yeah which reflexively makes it less uh, you know, less where the, the tail is going to be. Um, you know, that said, that doesn't mean the relative value opportunity can't be reflected there, right? Um, again, I, I think in particular, uh, I think we're likely to see a, a period, you know, periods in the, in the, like we have seen where dispersion is, is going to be a good opportunity um, where, you know, index small uh, is more likely a, a short, even though it may seem cheap, right? To be long, um, you know, uh, in other, single list uh, kind of baskets or, you know, across other parts of the market. Um, you know, uh, again, I think you'll see more rotation under the hood. You'll see some underlying volatility, but ultimately I think, um, you know, in the short term uh, on an index level, it's, it's less likely. So these, these represent opportunities, my point. Uh, yeah. you know, ball arbitrage doesn't mean you're long ball or short ball. It means you're looking at relative value opportunities. Um, and then, so the second engine, the dealer flow, Right, you've kind of yep. over the last two years made your name on that, so to speak. Um, yep. Let's, I think it's well covered. But what are, what are some of the limits of that? Right, like so you can't. It's not a perfect indicator. It's not always going to be uh, game over, or, or is it? You tell me. But yeah, you know, no, I, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think the, the important thing to note with dealer flow is dealer flow is in everything. Right, uh, it is it is important and it is a growing component. Of, of kind of, uh, you know, why markets are moving the way they're moving. I think if, if you're not paying attention to it, it's, you know, I don't think I have to belabor these points at this point. I think, uh, you know, a year and a half or two years after starting to talk about it, we're starting to see, you know, you, you've seen post-expiration windows where you're regularly getting these drawdowns, right? This isn't a coincidence. Um, the, the, the reality, though, is, you know, a certain... Thing that represents a certain percentage of, of, of an outcome, right? And you don't know everything. That's powerful, not only in that it, that it helps you predict the future, it also it predict what's likely to happen, but it's powerful in that when it doesn't happen, it also tells you much about what you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a subtle thing that's hard to get right. If you know what the other components are, but you can't, you know, know explicitly what that, you know, you know how, how those things are going to respond when you have periods of flows that you know should be a certain way and they don't react, and I was referring to this in terms of this part of the year, right? Mm. Um, you know, and how this part of the year is important uh, because we know certain things about not only ball flows, but also 
you know, flows coming into in a liquid market at the end of the year, beginning of the year. And so, you know, there are there are old adages that are built around these things that people don't fully understand. But but ultimately, the, the point Santa here is Claus a positive. Rally. Yeah, Santa Claus will rally, January effect, right? All these things that, you, you know, um, we, we can go on and on about magical constructs they happen for a reason we can talk about seasonality a little bit if you like but but ultimately you know these are holiday periods when um you know there's less uh involvement in markets the more liquid there's less time uh you know and time matters for derivatives uh so so these charm flows are accelerated um you know so you have in a liquid market a lot more percentage kind of a buyback because it's happening faster. These effects are very strong and important during an end of the year period where you're also about to get, and we talked about the size of markets, $50 trillion US domestic market, right? We made 20, 20% or so this year, right? That's about $10 trillion in, in, in valuation increase in the S&P. Um, how much of that goes to work on Jan 1? I don't know, maybe 10% of it? Yeah. Something like that, right? right? That's a trillion dollars. We're talking about a JP Morgan trade of $18 billion pinning the market, right? So there's a period here of not just positive flows that are coming, but also an acceleration of time and charm and vana flows. Uh, you know, in these periods, those also those holidays, both times people don't think about this. So Thanksgiving and Christmas come right after major expirations, right? Which is a period of otherwise weakness. So they're stabilizing in a period of otherwise where, where you'd have risk. So you have these monthly positive on a charm flows, then you've got these holidays with all well supplied, and then time accelerating, right? And then you have these big flows into the end of the year, the very positive seasonal time for a reason structurally. So a lot of people don't understand what underpins that seasonality. But my point is, these flows are things that you can understand and you can track, and that if you know what you're doing, are a real edge, but that's not the whole story. But the whole story, the rest of the story kind of speaks to you a bit when these things don't come to pass, right? And, and it tells you something about the structural underpinning and the stress otherwise in the market. And that's why I, earlier I was talking a little bit about kind of how this is a very important two weeks and, and watching what happens in this context, being a lot more than people think. This is why that January effect people talk about, how the, the first week of the year goes, right? It's kind of how the whole year, oh, you know, yeah, says yeah. something about the year. There's, it, it sounds crazy, right? Uh, you know, if you don't understand these underpinnings, it makes no sense. But there's real... There's real logic, actually. There's real reasons that that, that tendency exists. Um, so what, what would you say to some Volar mm -hmm. that, that doesn't look at dealer flow at all, right? And just says, no, it's just in the math. It's just in the price. Like that stuff's all overrated. That's not what's like, I don't want you to get anyone in trouble, but. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you're going to get me in trouble. That's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, it's uh, you're playing yesterday's game, right? Like yeah, the reality right. is. The reality is, uh, you know, there, there's there's a much bigger game going on as this uh, as these it's always been going on, but as these products become a bigger and bigger part of markets, it's not just volatility traders I speak to. I I speak to money managers writ large. You know, if you're trying to 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 trade based on fundamentals, I think, or or even just flow, not even looking at options and ball and these effects, um, you know, you're you're missing a, a, a dramatic percentage. Um, of what's going on under the hood. And another way, as I think of it, right, you're playing the players, not the game. Um, That's right. Playing the game at the same time. But if you're not playing, right, if you're a good poker player, you can't just play the game. You can't just play your cards. You got to play the other players. 
right? That's well, I'd say the I'd say the players are the game, right? It's a market. Yeah, exactly. At the end of the day, yeah. they're buyers and sellers. That's what determines price. And if you don't, if you know who the buyers are and you know who the sellers are, um, you know, you're going to end up at a, at a better place in understanding what price should be. Twenty twenty two prediction. So you touched on some stuff. Touched that this beginning of the year period, end of the year period is going to be light out on fire. Um, what do you got for some? What are we going to see? Well, now we now we can get into some uh, kind of the macro stuff, which I kind of enjoyed too. Um, yeah. You know, I think um, everybody's probably sick of hearing about Omicron, right? But uh, right. I think Omicron's a big deal. Um, it's not a big deal. And the way people think it's a big deal, uh, it's a big deal in the sense that people are going, we're going to finally reach herd immunity. It's mm. going to happen. Um, so my prediction is, is whereas we've had fits and starts by playing this kind of hammer in the dance game of, you know, we're, we're not going to overwhelm the system. We're going to back away. We're going to come back in. We've extended this whole process and this economic, the economic kind of pain with it. I think, uh, you know, and this is not a political statement, I'm just, you know, uh, but I think the Omicron kind of, if it looks like, it's still a little early to say, but if it, if it looks like it's, a, a, you know, as relatively mild, again, very contagious, but, you know, less, um, you know, virulent and de- less deadly, um, if that is actually the case, especially given that we know more now about how to treat patients, uh, we're also better prepared than we were uh, you know, a year and a half ago, combine all those things, uh, this, this is going to accelerate the process is my view. Um, and an acceleration of that process is a huge deal for the economy, um, for the markets. Um, what does that mean for the economy and the markets? Let's kind of dive in a little bit. One, uh, you know, uh, the economy is going to probably accelerate. Um, it's, uh, is my view. I think, uh, there have been people who have a different view. I think you're going to see a bit of an inflection coming into the spring. Um, is that now a lot of people are like, oh, the economy is going to accelerate. That's great. Go buy stocks. Um, I'll actually argue that, uh, you know, much like the economy and uh, markets have been a bit unhinged from one another for the last year and a half, um, I think they, they continue to be. The economy is not the market. I would, I would actually stress it's a bit of the opposite. I think now that Omicron is likely to come in, we're likely to get to herd immunity and we're likely to kind of reopen in the spring. Um, I, I think the Fed is going to have to uh, accelerate tapering. Um, I think you're already starting to see it. Um, you know, and, and when, Fed, when the Fed can, begins to really take liquidity off the table, I think this market has, has a tough road to hoe. Um, yeah, I, like I, a, really, I really think it has headwinds. It feels like a classic buy the rumor, sell the fact, right? Like, hey, everyone's real cured, <laughs> sell it all, right? Like, we get right. just got that crisis fueled rally. Now it's time to sell. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope so. That so I think be- that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think ultimately, you know, again, good news for the economy. And I actually think this isn't just a one year thing. I, I talk about this pretty broadly, but I think we're really starting to look at a decade before us. And again, I hate to be all doom and gloom, but where, you know, we've had 40 years where the interest rates have gone top left to bottom right. And the assumption has been because that's what's happened for 40 years, that that will continue. Um, I think we've dragged along the bottom in terms of interest rates uh, until recently. Um, But, uh, you know, the fiscal response, the $12 trillion that's in the system um, is having an inflationary effect. It's not just the supply side kind of holdups from COVID. 
I think, uh, you know, again, the Fed has done about face on transitory. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I think there are real, if you look at wage growth on the bottom, it's dramatic. We haven't seen anything like that in 40 years. Uh, there's a there's a lot of people who are not willing to work for the same price, who are having major labor pressures, particularly on the low end. And that's part of what's driving that supply problem. I think that's what people are missing with that supply side response is that a lot of the the, the problems are actually because there's not enough labor. There's not enough people willing to do the jobs that need to be done, um, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, shipping or factories or, or yeah. wherever as well. So so I think, yeah, again, I think uh, inflation uh, is not, we're not talking about runaway inflation, but much higher um, than, than we've seen, uh, you know, and at least it's going to be something where the, the, the Fed has to worry about their dual mandate as opposed to their, their single mandate for four years, uh, you know, 40 years. They're no longer just worrying about uh, maximizing employment, but they have to worry about price stability going forward. And I think that's really going to be a tough situation in the next decade. You know, I think you will see uh, a gradual increase in, infl- in interest rates and normalization. And I think that's really bad for A, liquidity, B, uh, you know, uh, you know, for two reasons. One, uh, there's now somebody, something competing as interest rates go higher for, for returns. So you no longer, you decrease that TINA effect, right? But, but B, you also have just less liquidity, less money chasing um, assets and more money chasing goods. Um, and, and that's ultimately um, not good for stocks. Um, you know, multiple contraction tends to be what happens during those periods. And you think that on, in the vol space in particular, that how does that work out? Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it doesn't. This is the thing about inflation, and this is the thing a lot of people miss on the vol space, is vol, uh, most of these products are priced in nominal terms, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so you could get a situation very much so that where markets, uh, you know, in real terms really have some pain, right? But uh, in nominal terms, it's a kind of a, 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 a more gradual kind of decline. Now, that you'll have periods of volatility in between there. We're not going to transition there, you know. Uh, just smoothly. So I do think there'll be some some vol along the way, some some real opportunities, especially early on in that that kind of decade long process. But eventually, I think you know you look back again um, as you you know I encourage people to look at sixty eight to eighty two as a as as a as a timeline. But you know you, you'll eventually have a period where markets will have net gone nowhere with with you know several twenty percent type declines. Um, you know, uh, in, in several 50, 60% type rallies, um, with, with much, much ado about nothing. Right. So, um, and, and that itself represents massive opportunities in the ball arm space, because, uh, you know, there's so many assumptions to the, to skew and, and the, uh, the acceleration of markets to the upside, right. That actually, um, create other, you know, good opportunities in, in a ball arm world where that's not the trend. And just to be clear, all, these views don't inform the trading and the models, right? Like, it's correct. Systematic. Yeah, which yeah. is a shame. No, the, <laughs> I will say these. The only way that these do affect the trading is that they are. We do have macro factors like uh, interest rates um, yeah. and assumptions uh, on those that that have, you know. Our distributions are weekly with daily paths, so very little effect, right? But if you have a year-long, multi-year kind of uh, effect that you know that does have some minor effect on on our predicted dealer flow. Well, wait, strategy. interest interest rates are part of option pricing. What? <laughs> That's like, they've been zero for so long, right? They're, they're basically right, right. yeah. People probably forgot that. 
got any other predictions or should we move on? Uh, I think the only other thing that I think people aren't yet talking about, which will become a bigger thing here, is we haven't thought as much about politics. Um, you know, the midterms um, will be coming next year. Um, it doesn't look good for Dems, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I would argue that the next, again, these are bigger predictions, but the next 10 years, we're going to have a lot, a bunch of four-term, you know, four-year, one-term presidents. This is what happened the last time interest rates went higher with Ford and, and Carter, right? Um, I think, uh, I think, you know, what, I think Biden's going to end up being a four, you know, he, you know, and the Dems likely are, are likely to lose, you know, much like a lot of times it happens, lose Congress in, in this midterm. Um, I think that will, um, at first, people will think, okay, less fiscal, you know, uh, that's, uh, it'll be kind of a, a positive, but I, I'm guessing that um, uh, this, this demand on the next drawdown in the markets for more uh, relief to people is going to come again, whether it's right or left. I think that's probably how we've moved as a, as a population. So in the short term, I think it's, it, it's, a, it's probably seen as a positive by markets. Um, you know, next year after kind of a tough year this year. And then I think ultimately, you know, going into uh, the next kind of multi-year period, I think you have another kind of retracement down when people realize there's more fiscal coming rates are probably going to continue to go higher, um, you know, over the long run. So this is going to be a rolling kind of slow back and forth up in interest rates normalization. Uh, and I think the first step here with the midterms is, is uh, a little view of less inflation in the short term which will be a relief to, to markets that are, you know, again, in the next six months going to probably have some pain uh, related to the Fed tapering. Yeah, I, we've talked about this before. I think the genie's out of the bottle on that, right? I think we're already basically at basic income and they're just so, going to keep saying, we need another, we need another. Um, and, and I'm not even sure that's a bad thing, like, right? Wealth's at all-time highs. Everything's, everything's going swimmingly well, besides the little inflation problem. Um, right. Besides that, it's, there's, not, there's no easy solution. The yeah, yeah there's, there's no easy solution. I think the reality that people miss a lot of the time is that um, what the Fed has done, which is allowing free markets to kind of work, um, is is which is supply side economics essentially has been GDP maximum. It has created greater growth. It's created a technological revolution. Now the yeah. problem is it's also created because there's a cost of that, which is it's created inequality. But yeah. it's been able to do that uh, because it hasn't created inflation now. You start dealing with inequality. You start dealing with median economics. There is an inflationary problem, and we're going, getting back to kind of the old economy, right? Um, and and uh, you know, so much harder to grow things the way we've been growing with the leverage that we have um, in that type of a world. So yeah, to your point, I think to the extent we are being forced to to, to deal with inequality, uh, we are going to have a tough time in markets given where we are and the amount of leverage that's over. Although I saw what was that, a tweet today, the last two years has been the biggest, right? The bottom 50% is, has increased in wealth the most. Like, I think it was 40%. The top 1% was 27%. From a very, from a yes. very low level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. A couple of Chicago questions for you, fellow Chicago guys. So what's your thoughts? We're getting a little political here, but the Chicago crime, all this, are you bailing? Are you holding steady? A couple of my friends are like hiring private security to drive around their block. Like it's getting a little. Yeah. Insane. So I was, I lived in, I lived in Bucktown before until recently. I sold my place, moving to Old Town, uh, right by my kid's school, by the lakefront. Um, 
uh, as I after I left, I found out that uh, in our neighbor old neighborhood, they hired again private security for the neighborhood. So yeah, yeah. absolutely, kind of strange. Right. Uh, Hall of mirrors. I'll tell you, it's it's weird. I mean, I, you know this being in Chicago. If you didn't look at the news, you probably wouldn't know, right? right. It's not like uh, it, 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 there's also a lot of you know we live in a a city that's very de facto segregated. There's different pockets that are very high crime and. And, 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 you know, um, then there are other areas where you wouldn't notice it as much. That said, it's obviously been an issue. Um, I, you know, I think this speaks to kind of the inequality problem, right, yeah. that we were just talking about. And, um, you know, it's, it's easy to point the fingers in a lot of directions. So I'm, I'm going to kind of stay away from the political uh, piece. But I think, I think the reality is, uh, you know, if you ad- address the causes of the problem, the, the inequality issue, I think you'll, you'll eventually kind of solve the bigger problem um so i'm hopeful yeah, that in the years to come that this will be less of a problem here versus us all hiring security guards and to wrap up new this season we're asking guests for two truths and a lie so tell us something some interesting tidbits about you and i'll see if i can suss out the real ones um all right i got a couple for you all right I got I got four for you here. Four, all right. Uh, just because I couldn't decide, I was yeah. I was once I was once stuck in the Bolivian salt flats and rescued by um, contraband, uh, you know, uh, police and the <laughs> Bolivian salt flats. Uh, another one. Uh, another one. Um, uh, I was the mascot for my high school. Oh, um, which was I was, which was uh, Andover, uh, you know, on the boarding school. On the, the, oh, the it was a gorilla. A, it was a gorilla. It was a gorilla. A gorilla. Called Gunga. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I once uh, performed ceremonial rites uh, with a on Indians in Copper Canyon um, at the base of the canyon, um, and then uh, I uh, I fell out of a four story building and survived. Oh, well, I think I got to go with you fell out of the four story building and survived as the as the lie. That's true. That's true. A four story building. Four story building. What? How old were you? I was uh, in Chicago, actually. It was one of those, uh, it was in the newspaper. You could probably go dig it up if you really wanted to go look, but I was- um, Like one of those rooftop- was in two, uh, 2005. Yep, rooftop uh, kind of gave way. Yeah. And two of us fell forth. Yep, one of those wood decks, right? That, the railing gave way and I fell forth. I remember that story. It was like Wrigley Village or something? Yeah. yeah, not that one. It was the year after that. And it was actually in the newspaper because that one- had happened the year before it was a big deal. And I was like, this still hasn't been fixed, you know? Um, but yeah. Four stories. stories. Did you break anything? I did. I broke my spiral fact fracture to my tibia and my, uh, you know, I broke my shoulder blade, but I, uh, yeah, luckily the shoulder blade is your, your densest bone in your body. You learn right. new thing every day. So, um, and, and the tibia is the furthest thing from your head. So I apparently um, I fell, the, fell the right way. <laughs> All right, you got me. I'm gonna go Gunga the gorilla. That's true. <laughs> All right, go for two. Yeah. Uh, ceremonial rites. That's true. Ah, I'm over three. 
<laughs> the Bolivian salt flat, there probably uh, isn't I, even I, a I, thing. I, Bolivian I, salt I, I, I cheated. They're all true. They're what? all true. <laughs> <laughs> all right, done. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> what What were you doing in the Bolivian salt flats? I uh, I lived in South America the junior my junior year of, of college in Chile in Santiago Chile, and uh, there were riots. Pinochet had made himself a lifetime senator prior, and there were riots counter Pinochet, and it's a very activist kind of yeah. you know South America that you know especially at the at the school I was at, and so a bunch of Chilean kids came and tapped me on the shoulder and were like, you know you don't want to be at school tomorrow. This is gonna be you know, gonna be Riotas. And I was like, well, in that case, I'm def- definitely coming to school tomorrow. So uh, no, it was so literally Molotov cocktails and tanks. They closed the school, but it was just after the midpoint of of the school year. So they, uh, I still got kind of credit, right? And then we we had probably the best education of all because we hopped in a car and, and traversed South America um, for uh, a good three four months. Um, and uh, yeah, that was an incredible experience. At one point, like I said, I. We were in the Bolivian salt flat, salt flats is the highest plateau, uh, you know, in, in South America. Beautiful place, but uh, needless to say, a Toyota Tercel doesn't do too well in, <laughs> in, in, in off-road uh, environments. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so uh, yeah. So, yeah, a little breakdown. And it's literally the middle of, you know, nowhere. There's nothing out there. And for like about a day, we were just stuck, like, you know, in the middle of this, this salt flat. Wow. Pretty you, cool story. You and Butch and Sundance hanging out in Bolivia. <laughs> I love it. All right, Jim. Well, uh, happy holidays to you. Happy New Year. Same happy to you, birthday. Um, Thank you. And we'll talk soon. It's been fun. Yeah, I look forward to being in touch. Yeah, thanks for having yeah. me again. It's always a good time. The Derivative is brought to you by CME Group. CME Group is the world's leading and most diverse futures and options exchange. For more information and educational resources about futures and options, visit cmegroup.com. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlts and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at RCMAlts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors.